Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone. We're super excited to welcome you all to this virtual Commonwealth Club event. I'm Jonathan Rosenberg, and I've been an executive at Google since 2002, and I'll have the privilege of moderating for all of us today. The Commonwealth Club continues to host these virtual events, and they're grateful for the support of members and donors like all of you. Please visit commonwealthclub.org, and you can learn about membership. And you can also support the club right now with a tax-deductible gift by clicking on the blue Donate button on your screen. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Dambisa Moyo. She is the author of How Boards Work and How They Can Work Better in a Chaotic World. You're all going to buy this book after the event. This is what it looks like. Dr. Moyo was actually one of the last guests at dinner at my home before this whole COVID thing. At that time, she was dating my friend, Jared Smith. And I thought I should start today by acknowledging that some truly wonderful things come out of pandemics. Because after spending months locked in close proximity with Jared, Dr. Moyo is now a newlywed. Dr. Moyo is, of course, also my friend. And I know if I keep referring to her as Dr. Moyo, she's going to say, Jonathan, that is my father's name. So I'm going to say congratulations, Dambisa, and I'll use your first name moving forward. In, you're welcome. Congratulations. In addition to being newly married, Dambisa is an international economist who writes on the macroeconomy and global affairs. She was recognized by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. That's what it's, I shouldn't read anything else, Dambisa. I'm just going to repeat that. She was recognized as one of Time Magazine's 100 most important influential people in the world and named to the World Economic Forum's Global Leaders Forum. So this is going to be a great event. Thank you. I am delighted to be here. I'm only sad that it's not in person. And I do want to thank you, Jonathan, for giving Jared a kick in the pants, because uh, I'm not entirely sure uh, it would have happened during COVID if it weren't for your uh, sage wisdom. <laughs> but he's a, Jared's a smart guy. I don't think he needed a kick in the pants. But we, we want to hear about all the things that you've learned from the boards that you're on. And of course, we want to hear your own story. But maybe we should help the audience by starting with the very basics. You can help us demystify things a bit because I think most of the people in the audience, they've probably never seen the inside of a boardroom. So tell us, why do we have boards and what do they do? That's a wonderful question. And it's actually uh, partly the motivation for uh, writing uh, this book, How Boards Work. Um, every single day, billions of goods and services are delivered around the world without incident. We don't even think about it. We open our Zoom screens, we turn on our taps, we pick up our iPhones. And it really is in part due to the success of corporations which are overseen and uh, provided guidance by the board. These corporate boards, which generally are around 12 people, um, are there to do three things. They provide oversight in terms of the strategy of the company, um, and we'll, of course, delve into these areas. Um, they secondarily provide oversight and direction with selecting the CEO, um, so both hiring and, in some instances, having to fire the CEO also. And then, finally, um, they are responsible for the corporate culture, um, and by that, I'm talking about non-negotiable things like professionalism and excellence, but also this new cultural frontier, or ESG, um, which I know we will get into. Okay. Well, I want to hear about firing CEOs, because that sounds like some fun, nitty-gritty material. Tell us a little bit about a board director. What specifically are a board director's duties? So as I mentioned, um, the mandate of the board is pretty clear. And just to give a historical context, uh, I talk about this in my book, but the first board uh, that I found uh, was actually dates back to the 1600s. And in many respects, the board responsibility um, has not changed, in particular for those two key aspects. We are responsible for providing oversight for strategy, and that's not just near-term or short-term strategy over the next year, but it's thinking about medium-term strategy between three to five years, and then beyond that, what is this company going to be uh, over the long term? I've actually had the privilege of serving on the board 
of a company that's 360 years old. And many companies that I still serve on today are over 100 years old. So we have that custodial role. And ultimately, you want to make sure that the company doesn't go belly up um, and continues to survive, but also thrive as a going concern over generations to come. Um, the second issue, as I said, in terms of the mandate, which hasn't really changed fundamentally over not only uh, decades, but centuries, is really selecting the talent at the top. And that is really quite critical. Some people might say it's the most important piece um, of the job of, of board members is to select that CEO, um, partly uh, because ultimately the CEO is the standard bearer of the corporate culture. Um, they are the leader who provides a vision, but also guidance in terms of where the organization uh, will go. And then, as I said, more and more uh, boards are being called upon to provide guidance um, in terms of this very complex area, environmental, social, and governance issues, which is everything from climate change and worker advocacy to questions of obesity and voting rights, as well as data privacy, and the list goes on and on, discrimination, et cetera. And I know uh, we will get into more details about why specifically this agenda is incredibly difficult and why there's so many trade-offs associated with that role. Okay, and I learned some great history in the book, actually, that uh, the word director goes back to the Bank of England, I think you mentioned in 1694, and the East India Company was the one that came up with the concept of boards being responsible for hiring and firing CEOs, which we'll talk about. That's right. That's exactly right. Okay, so let's let's demystify a little bit more because I think most of us think of like a board director as this really kind of cool and cushy job. You know, you fly into quarterly meetings, you get to hang out with handsome, well-dressed people ensconced in boardrooms in expensive leather chairs with like big mahogany tables, right? So is that all there is to it? You show up once a quarter and sit in a room and talk for a day or is there work in between? What's kind of the scale and scope and life of a director like? You know, um, in many respects, I feel like I was also seduced by that narrative that they were, we were, they were drinking a Chateau uh, Lafitte or uh, enjoying wonderful golf trips. Um, but that is far from reality. And if ever there were uh, that sort of lifestyle in the boardroom, it certainly has not been uh, in the over 10 years that I've served on the boards of large global and complex uh, organizations. Um, boards, on average, I would say, meet uh, basically four to four to six times a year, uh, once a quarter, and then we generally have at least one multi-day strategy session where we talk about the sort of strategic objectives of the company, what is it going to be uh, when it grows up, thinking about massive global trends, things like globalization and digitization, um, but also thinking about real opportunities for the company to continue to grow and succeed over long periods of time. Um, if you think back to the sort of narrow uh, objectives of a company, I mean, really companies for, for, for millennia, uh, I would maybe even argue, um, have been focused on job creation, infrastructure investments, um, focused on innovation, as we've seen even with the vaccine rollout uh, in just the past year. But things like providing a tax base, this is how I would say is motherhood and apple pie for corporations. But that has changed tremendously with the uh, emphasis on that ESG agenda and sort of more rapidly changing uh, aspects of social and, uh, and cultural change. What that means is that although in principle uh, we might meet four to six times a year, um, there are a lot more considerations, uh, everything from shocks like the financial crisis or COVID that mean we may be forced to meet more regularly. It's probably worth me pointing out also that there is a difference between the board and the board committees which support that board work. And many, I would argue uh, myself, a lot of the work is actually done in those committees, audit committee, compensation committee, risk committee or, or nominations and governance committees. Um, those tend to be the backbone of, uh, of the board work. And uh, often, particularly in areas of audit, you tend to meet more than just those four meetings because we do have to sign off um, that very important pen in, in hand uh, where, you know, it does bring the sort of rubber to the road of the role. Um, you have to sign off on the financials, um, which are heavily regulated and must be completely accurate. So, you know, yes, uh, in principle, on paper, uh, board roles uh, are quite specific in terms of how many times we meet. But in practice, you get hit by COVID. Uh, or in my case, I was on the board of a bank during the financial crisis. 
and ended up having 54 meetings, which is basically one a week. Um, so you've got to be prepared for, for anything. Okay. So let's talk now a little more specifically about your experience on boards. You're from Zambia, and you were appointed to the board of SAB Miller before you turned 40, and you later served on the Barclays board, and now you're on the boards of 3M and Chevron, and you didn't exactly take the conventional path through the C-suite. So how exactly did you accomplish all of that? You know, very fortuitously, and I hope I can inspire people out there um, that it's actually possible uh, to be uh, on a board of a large global and complex organization without the traditional route. I feel uh, eternally grateful for the opportunity. But to set it in context, you're absolutely right. I am an unconventional board member. Uh, I'm black. I'm a woman. I'm from Africa. I was 39 when I joined my first board, as, as you mentioned. And most importantly, I would argue, I was... Uh, I was not from the C-suite, and that, by that I mean I had not been the CEO or CFO of a large company. Um, but I, I, I will also say uh, very honestly that I had tried over uh, certainly a half a decade um, every effort that I could to try and get on boards, and I kept you know, meeting with a door being slammed in my face. And I must tell you uh, quite candidly, nobody really had the temerity uh, to tell me what the problem was. And I thought, well, why, why can't I even get shortlisted? And really, um, it was because uh, certainly conventionally, and to some extent still today, um, a lot of boards are looking for people with that conventional CEO and CFO experience. And I do understand why that is critically important. But the good news uh, is that the aperture has widened because companies are dealing with global issues. Um, and I was very lucky because uh, I, I have a background in macroeconomics and geopolitics. And also I had written a book at that time, um, which, uh, was, which really uh, addressed a number of issues um, structural issues on economic development, but more specifically, I uh, was talking about the environments in which many companies uh, invest. And so that was my really uh, my opening. Um, but I will say 40% of boards, I still think today, um, are uh, seats taken up by people who've been CEOs and CFOs previously. All right. Well, that's actually a pretty good formula. You write New York Times bestsellers like Dead Aid and How the West Was Lost and Edge of Chaos and Winner Take All. And then timing with events like the market crashing in 2008 and you happening to be the world expert in market capitalism and geopolitics and emerging markets in China, those things also help if you're trying to take an unconventional path. Yes, uh, please don't blame me for orchestrating all that drama to, make a, to get a board seat, but uh, it, very fortuitously, uh, the world did align in my favor. <laughs> and what if you think back to that first day when you went into your first board meeting, I guess that was at SAB Miller, right? That's right. What, yes. what do you know now that you wish you could have told yourself then when you showed up for that meeting? Gosh, uh, you know, let me maybe broaden it up a little bit. Um, you know, in the over 10 years I've been on boards, I've had a chairman die in office. I've had um, a, a, a company acquired for over $100 billion. Uh, we thought it would never be acquired. That was SAP Miller, largest transaction in 2016. I have had activists in the stock of companies that I've been on the board. I've had, uh, you know, a, a expropriation by government, uh, a company where I joined the board and the share price was nearly $60. A few years later, it was down to seven bucks. Um, and, you know, fortunately, the company is still around and the share price is over $20 now. But real trauma in the boardroom, hiring and firing CEOs is one company. I had four CEOs. Uh, in just six years. Um, clearly, at some point, the board has to take a lot of responsibility for that high turnover, but really an extensive uh, a body of experience. And I think just in thinking about what, to me, stood out, um, number one is you've got to leave your ideological views at the door. Of course, people are interested in uh, rational, uh, you know, pragmatic and thoughtful board members. That is what is going to make companies survive over the long term. Um, but really, you cannot be so ideological because a lot of the things that you're dealing with requires a lot of judgment. Um, and I, you know, I, I think often about how uh, I wish there was a class for me to take judgment. In fact, Daniel Kahneman has a book coming out next week on judgment. I'm desperate to get my hands on it because that is one area that you can't really teach. Um, there are lots of people who could take the board role um, that I have, but ultimately, it's having that good judgment, especially when things get tough. M&A transactions, picking the CEO. These are not things that people 
find easy consensus on, um, but they require good judgment and people who are continuous learners as well, I think is invaluable. You know, I'm struck by something that President Obama said, uh, it's, which is in my book as well, which is to say that by the time something hit his inbox, it meant that things were very difficult um, because if it were easy, somebody else would have dealt with it. And I very much view the same uh, point with respect to boards. By the time something is in our board agenda, it means it's very difficult. If it were easy, someone else would solve it. And I think those complex issues that have a lot of a multifaceted and have many different angles uh, and vectors require judgment. All right. Well, you learn a lot about someone by the books that they read. Uh, Daniel Kahneman, Think Fast and Slow was terrific, and I'll look forward to the next one as well. So now we've learned a little bit about boards and we understand you a little bit better and how you earned your way onto those boards. Let's try to give the audience an insider view of how boards really operate. And we've been talking a little bit about firing and hiring CEOs, which sounds pretty juicy. <laughs> Let, let's just start with hiring. What attributes do you look for in a CEO? So there is the conventional view, um, which I do challenge in this book, um, which is to say we've traditionally focused on areas such as, does this person have good financial acumen? Um, are they growing revenues? Are they you know, building a profit base? Uh, what about the market share, et cetera? Or in some instances, how have they helped to cost cut in times when there's a downdraft in the economy? Um, another area that we're very focused on is operations. Can they operate a large global complex business that's in different jurisdictions? What happens during COVID? How does the, the leader actually uh, help to motivate uh, its, uh, the, the employee base, but to make sure that safety, um, basically the, the lights come on every day uh, without uh, any glitches? And that requires a whole lot of orchestration uh, that uh, a CEO does. And of course, um, more and more, uh, we're expecting to see leaders show um, great leadership in terms of being standard bearers of the culture, um, you know, aspects of uh, being a wartime versus a, C a, a peacetime CEO um, are, are interesting uh, angles that I, I talk about in the book. But more and more, we want to know about that moral compass, you know, thinking about ethics, thinking about being a good citizen um, and, and really navigating the choppy waters, as I mentioned earlier, of a world that uh, ideologically is very different uh, depending on where you are. Okay. And for those of us who are in the audience and stuck with lousy CEOs running the companies that win, I'm not one of them, but they may fantasize that the board is on a short plan to get rid of them. So take us under the hood and tell us, like, how does a board go about firing a CEO? It's incredibly difficult to do that. Um, I think it's it's got many angles. It says a lot about uh, about you know what the what the board did in putting that person in place in the first place. Um, but it's very complicated because very it's almost impossible uh, or very rare, I should say, um, to be in a situation where it's a, a blatantly fireable offense. In fact, as I think about my own board career. Um, I was thinking that for over 50% of the time where I've had to punish, censure, or fire a CEO or very senior executive, it had nothing to do with financial performance or operational breaches. It all, almost always had to do with uh, ethics, ethical violations. Um, and sometimes these things are kind of murky. They culturally, what, what it, it's sort of black and white in one country means is not exactly the same in a different country. And I have had the privilege of working in many different jurisdictions, not just the United States, but also in the UK, in Europe, as well as in Canada. And even for countries that are democratic and ostensibly speak the same language, even in those places, um, what passes in one culture does not pass in another or has a little bit more hair on it. So there are a lot of these issues that we have to take into consideration. It's not easy to fire a CEO. The, con the, the, the implications for, for, the, for the organization in its entirety, because by and large, every CEO comes in with their own view about how things can become more efficient, um, is constantly uh, it, it put into upheaval uh, by changing CEOs. So it's not something at all that we do lightly. Okay. And let's talk about staffing the board. In the book, you use one of my favorite uh, authors, Jim Collins, and his book, Good to Great. And you refer to a business as being like a bus with people getting on and choosing seats. And I've often used that analogy, but I've used it in reference to a corporate mission, right? You want the employees, you want the selection bias of the employees who want to go where your bus is going. And 
in your book, you use it to talk about getting the right people in the right seats. So exactly what kind of people and expertise are you looking for when you're building a board? So um, I alluded to, to the committees um, as a sort of first port of call. Um, so for example, you know, we do have to have people with um, expertise in audit and accounting and finance because we have to sign off on financials every quarter. Uh, especially if you're on the audit committee, and we make recommendations to the broader board about dividends, about um, controls, uh, things that uh, regulators are, are very interested in, um, and, and rightly so. Um, and so you do need people with that kind of acumen. Um, you need people with financial expertise, of course, people more and more who understand people, human capital um, areas are definitely important in areas such as nominations and governance. Um, but as I pointed out, we can't look for just uh, what, what, I, what, what I should say, what we are looking for is people who are what I describe in the book as T board members. So they've got deep expertise in a particular area, but that top T bit, they're broad enough to be able to opine on different areas. You don't want to be on a, a board uh, or we don't, you know, I, do, I think by and large, we don't like board members who are super smart in one area, let's say technology. Um, but then when it comes to talking about capital allocation or compensation, which are absolutely uh, par for the course, main fare for board discussions that they don't really can't form a view or they, they haven't really got the perspective that is necessary. So I think more and more we are looking for board members that have deep expertise, um, but at the same time are able to contribute to broader conversations, whether it's geopolitics, digitization, um, and, and just how to continue to keep the, the operations moving. Okay. And the last time I was at a Commonwealth event, it was actually for my book, Trillion Dollar Coach, which was about a man who spent a lot of time in boardrooms, and I think many of the people in the audience have heard of, Bill Campbell. Bill passed away a few years ago, but I actually have his notes on running both private and public boards here. And he said, quote, board meetings fail because founders take too much crap from their board and the CEO doesn't follow his or her own agenda for the meeting. If you surround yourself with board members who don't respect and support what you do, that is a recipe for failure. So for the young entrepreneurs in the audience starting companies, do you disagree? Do you agree or disagree? And how should they think in small startup companies about selecting the right board members? Uh, what a wonderful question. And I, you know, I think the complexity about entrepreneurship and smaller businesses is that at the time that you are running at top speed to keep the lights on and to grow the business, sell your product, et cetera, you know, it might be the very last thing um, for you to start to think about the challenges, the broader challenges that might affect you that are not really uh, front, in, front in your face, but yet uh, larger corporations deal with on a daily basis, things like regulation. Um, and, and frankly, um, I am very much a buyer of Warren Gretzky's um, thinking about where the puck is going, not where the puck is. Uh, and in that respect, I do think um, companies uh, and, and uh, uh, CEOs benefit from having the perspective of people who can say, you know what, you know, at a, but with your revenues at 15 million a year, I understand why this might be important, but you know, if you actually really take off and you end up being like 3M with $30 billion in sales every year, you know, these ethical questions or processes that you might be sweeping over uh, or controls uh, that are really gonna be important in future um, are, are things that are gonna come back to bite you. So you might as well build the business from day one in a way, as challenging as it may be, in a way that it has that, that strength and veracity to survive uh, over the long time. So, you know, I do empathize um, because obviously you, you're, you're running as fast as you can to keep the company growing and, and you, you know, you've got these insane growth rates and that's wonderful. But I think that temptation to think about outcomes versus process is incredibly dangerous because if you do get what you want, which is long-term success, you will have probably missed a lot of things and that could be your, your great undoing. Okay. So, one of these young CEOs is trying to hire board members and they're looking for people with the right credentials. And I mean, I could send my resume in and it might look credible. If you were interviewing me as a board member, like what would you ask? How do you like figure out who's any good at this? 
Well, you know, Jonathan, um, as I mentioned to you, I am very much, uh, by the time you're in front of me um, for a board seat or a CEO seat, it probably means you can very well box take in terms of financial acumen, uh, being a good leader, teamwork, uh, areas of operational expertise. So I very much love to ask questions uh, around your moral compass and ideology or philosophy. Well, I got a moral life. compass. Go on. What would you ask me? <laughs> So I would ask you, uh, my favorite question, which I think is a great date question as well, is what's the worst thing you've done to another human being? Am I supposed to answer that? I thought <laughs> yes. I was the one asking the questions. <laughs> you are supposed to answer that. And by the way, there's is no right or wrong answer. <laughs> this is being recorded? Okay. All right. All right. Well, I'll play. The okay. The question is, what is the worst thing I've ever done to another human being? Yes. Um, well, uh, I interviewed someone for one of the companies that I previously worked for who was really terrific and wanted the job. And I thought this person was terrific. And just before hiring committee, another executive who, for whatever reasons, didn't like this person, tried to kind of cajole me into not being so aggressive about speaking about that person. And when the person's candidacy come up, this person kind of undermined it. And this person was more powerful than I was, and I didn't speak up. And the person didn't get the job, and I think in retrospect, it probably adversely impacted that person. So would I, am I not qualified? Am I in well, trouble? Is this being recorded? <laughs> Well, look, there's no right or wrong answer. But, you know, from a board uh, evaluation perspective, I'd be quite worried by that and think, hmm, does that mean you wouldn't speak up if you saw wrong good, wrongdoings and, you know, happening elsewhere in whatever, whatever, whatever aspect, hiring people or running of the business? And I would hope that by, you know, by asking that question and you reflecting on, uh, on what you've done, you, you perhaps will have some learnings um, about how, if you were in that situation again, notwithstanding the more powerful senior person, uh, you would be able to articulate your view with perhaps uh, you know much more clarity uh, without uh, that fear. So, I mean, we're we're not looking to play gotcha. We're trying to find the best people for the best seats because these are in critically important roles given uh, given the global economy and what the companies do. Okay. Well, we'll shift back away from the moderator, and I'll stick with moderating and not boardrooms, and. You know, let's talk about the world, which has changed quite a bit since you first started on boards. You know, we've seen a, a real cultural revolution that has entered the boardroom. And I was brainwashed in capitalism and efficient market theory at the University of Chicago. I still have a copy of Milton Friedman's Capitalism and Freedom from back in 1962 on my desk. And he said, quote, there's only one and only one social responsibility of business to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profits, so long as it stays within the rules of the game, which is to say engages in open and free competition without deception or fraud. So we always need a professor to translate Milton Friedman for us. Basically, he said, a business's sole purpose is to generate profit for shareholders. I paid a lot of money for my MBA at the University of Chicago, and that's pretty much what, pretty much what they taught me. So Dambisa, is Milton Friedman wrong? What's changed? So um, the, the, what you just read out was also the linchpin of Milton Friedman's article in the 1970 piece in the New York Times. And I have to tell you, I never met Milton Friedman, but I do think he has been quite harshly judged. Because if you read the whole article, um, and actually more broadly his writings, he was also very clear that, of course, this would change based on societal ethics and norms and the broader context. So he didn't say this is forever and ever to be. He said, look, he essentially recognized that this was a very dynamic thing. And, you know, I am um, obviously a massive supporter of what the Business Roundtable um, statement of 2019 came out with, which is to essentially say we've got to move away from this financial shareholder primacy into a world of stakeholders. Um, but the truth is it's incredibly difficult to implement that, and that's where we're feverishly trying to take that lofty goal and put it into work in a measurable, transparent way that anyone can see that corporations are adding value. This is not um, easy stuff. There are a lot of trade-offs, which we can talk about in a moment. I'd love to give you some examples of that challenge. But also, we have to remember corporations and the boards that lead them are not elected officials. 
um, we are no, we're not inured to what's happening you know in society and these greater demands but we also have to be sensitive to the fact that it might not be too long from now that the very people who are advocating for more corporate uh, responsibility i.e going beyond what the ma original mandate was and moving into the sort of political and policy purview might turn around and say, wait a second, why are you the ones opining or allocating capital and resources in these areas? You are not elected to act on behalf of us as citizens. Uh, we are looking much more for, uh, for uh, uh, more government action. And I think in that respect, government also does need to step up in a lot of areas. Okay. In Silicon Valley, lots of startups work very hard to codify their cultural values. I think most people in the audience probably know the famous uh, Reed Hastings Netflix document, which is probably the best document that I've ever seen that goes through and, and codifies cultural values. Founders often make everyone read these things. They give them pop quizzes in the micro kitchen. But you work with much more established companies than startups, big companies. And, and I've always preached that culture starts in the beginning. And it's too late if you don't change it in the beginning. How do company cultures change and how does the board impact changing a culture of a large established company? Look, you know, it, it's changing with societal change. Um, many large corporations, as I, you know, I mentioned, I've been on a board which is 360 years old. Uh, um, Chevron 3M are over 100 years old. They have uh, business principles. I was at Goldman Sachs for almost 10 years. They had global uh, principles that were supposed to codify and sort of act as a compass for how the organization should run. But those very often... Um, you know, are, are cha they change because of societal norms changing. So things that in the past you would say, well, is this um, generating profit? Yes. Is it legal? Yes. Um, that was that was perfectly fine. Those were two hurdles you could clear and you could do the business. Now we've got an additional layer which say, says it's not enough for it to be profit generating and legal. Um, we now have another lens. We're saying, does this thing actually um, you know, it, it meet uh, ethical and moral norms based on what we know today? Um, and we've many, many things that uh, 10 years, even 10 years ago would have passed as, you know, acceptable, passable, um, are no longer acceptable. Just, you know, in the last couple of years, um, in just over 18 months, uh, we saw over 400 CEOs and senior executives lose their jobs because of Me Too. Um, that is not uh, uh, because uh, people didn't really feel that uh, there, there needs to be some sort of behavior uh, norms that are acceptable, but the world has changed, and that is seen as no longer acceptable, um, and that's why these things are so complicated. Um, you know, I, I, if I may, I'd just love to give a little bit more, a few more examples. I don't want to, to speak too long, but just to give you some examples of things that make it really difficult. So on the one hand, we're faced constantly um, with people saying they want to defund energy companies. But, you know, at the same time, you have, uh, you know, companies such as the boards in which I serve, but the energy sector in general, that is desperately seeking, um, you know, ways in which to contribute to energy transition, recognizing that there are 1.5 billion people around the world, many of them that look like me, my own family who live in Africa, um, who do not have access to energy in a sustainable and reliable way, and certainly not in a cost-effective way. We're investing in solar, in wind, in water, in uh, nuclear Gen 4, battery, geothermal. I mean, take your pick. And my, I always say, out of 8 billion people on the planet, if somebody knew how to solve for energy in a sustainable, scalable, cost-effective way, we would have that answer. It's creative destruction. But the fact that we don't means that it's a very complicated issue. And we want people like energy companies to be at the tip of the spear. Another very quick example, if I may, is, is racial discrimination. Um, the, the, the numbers are in. There's absolutely no doubt about it. If you want to be competitive, if you want to compete and succeed, um, you need more diversity at the boardroom level, in the C-suite, uh, broadly in your workforce. It's completely accepted. But we don't want a narrative. As a board member, you should not want a narrative that is so doggedly um, pro-discrimination that to the extent that it starts to sound like you're anti-other groups. In other words, you should not be fighting discrimination with discrimination. We don't want to lose the high-performing white guy um, or you know, other groups um, because uh, we, we see that, uh, dis that uh, racial and, and gender uh, uh, diversity is a good thing. It's absolutely a good thing, but we have to bring everyone along. We can't create 
fractures in an organization. And there's a long list of these in the book, data privacy issues, issues about worker advocacy, very popular in Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, on the one hand, you want work-life balance. On the other hand, we're invested in China, where there's 996 people working from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., um, six days a week. Do they want a Western company coming to tell them what time they can work? And what does that mean for customer boycotts and Western values being imposed there? We have to think about these issues. So ESG is a very complex issue with lots of, uh, lots of hair. And interestingly, you mentioned in the book one of my other favorite authors, Carol Dweck, and you point out that Satya at Microsoft really did a terrific job of instilling a growth mindset in what would otherwise be an old line you know, set of executives in a very large company. That's exactly right. Um, you know, we I, I've touched on creative destruction. You know, the, the, the whole ESG agenda broadly uh, is complicated further by the fact that within companies, there are different cultures. If you work in a bank, investment banking culture is quite different from a consumer good culture, but also between companies. Um, Netflix, you touched on earlier, it's a creative business. How they manage that is very different, as, uh, as uh, Reed Hastings has said many times, from penicillin company, where penicillin company, the degrees of freedom are pretty limited. You want my penicillin pill and your penicillin pill to basically be the same. Very different from trying to be creative business. And one of the things that I really love about Carol Dweck's work, and obviously what Satya Nadella has talked about, is that imbuing an organization with those creative juices, the growth mind, that so-called growth mindset, is something that's incredibly difficult to do. Um, and as board members, we have certain levers, whether it's compensation, which, by the way, Disney, um, you know, Bob Iger did a brilliant job by trying to attach compensation uh, to around, in, you know, innovation to, to uh, compensation. But these are really hard and challenging things, especially trying to move companies that have 100,000, 200,000, or if you're Walmart, you know, over a million employees. This is hard stuff, um, but it's absolutely necessary too. So I guess you get to be one of the 100 most influential people in the world by not only taking on Milton Friedman, but also Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett seems to argue that the legitimacy of corporations taking a moral view on these questions facing society, he, he really argues that change should be led by government, not corporations. Can governments do this? Are there any examples of that? Is that enough? Or is this really something that needs to be done primarily from the boardroom? Well, you know, Warren Buffett is a, a man after my heart because uh, the other thing that he said last week, which I thought, uh, you know, obviously is only somebody who's uh, worth a fortune and 90 years old can say without uh, any, with so much confidence, was that he thought a lot of the ESG metrics uh, focus is quite asinine. Um, I certainly wouldn't use that word, but I do think uh, the broader construct about who should be responsible, I think he's absolutely right. I don't understand why we don't hold government more accountable for failures in infrastructure, um, we, why, we, why we oughtn't hold government uh, more accountable in terms of development. In the United States, the U.S. government has a long history of being a visionary and a, a partner and a leader in, uh, in real, the successful, really successful projects in building out the infrastructure network, but also Silicon Valley, DARPA, Manhattan Project. I mean, they were part and parcel in that. And right now, um, I fear that there just hasn't been that sort of visionary uh, aspect that companies need in order to work. In fact, if anything, we're getting more work from government um, that we, as I said, we, we were not equipped to to satiate. I was very much struck by the semiconductors. The United States used to produce 37% of global semiconductors. It's now down to 12%. Like, what exactly is going on? We're all sit standing by and watching um, this, uh, this sort of train wreck. Um, and we do need government. I think Mike Bloomberg says we need government that's data-driven, forward-leaning, that is focused on measured outcomes and is not corrupt. Um, it seems like a low bar, but you know we, we are struggling right now uh, without government leadership. I'm hoping um, more and more that we, you know, government will realize not, it's not just about what China is doing. What are we doing? American infrastructure is graded D plus by the American Society of Civil Engineers. We can do better. Um, corporations can do a lot, but we can't do it without the support and real engagement from government in a very sort of long-term, as I said, data-driven, measured, and uh, forward-leaning and non-corrupt way. Okay, so let's talk about some of these critical issues that face boards today. I, I'm sure everyone in the audience cares a lot about remote work. Personally, I'm kind of exhausted with all of the video conferencing, and I want to go spend time with my colleagues. But remote work is clearly 
something that we've proven can work. How does a board address remote work and remote pay moving forward as we emerge from this pandemic? You know, it's it's a wonderful question because it's so complicated. Um, I touched on a little bit in a lot of where companies are going to land on this issue um, is, is going to be driven by what kind of business you're in. So there, you know, I, I am somewhat of a creative because I write books, but I'm nowhere near as creative as people who work in Hollywood, for example. And the people I speak to in Hollywood, a lot of them say, hey, for the kind of work that's non-routinized, we do need to be in a room where we have a whiteboard and we're throwing all these crazy ideas up there. Um, and then out of that comes genius, um, you know, products from teams. Um, you know, it's not my place to opine on whether that's the case or not, but th this is a, a live issue. It's very different from a business, um, or even if you think about within companies, the product guys versus the marketing guys. A product guy, again, would say product teams work best when they're together in a collaborative way, thinking about, uh, you know, what, what could be the next innovation in these areas, and maybe remote working doesn't work as well. Whereas for marketing and sales, maybe you could be anywhere. You can pick up the phone, dial your client. You don't necessarily need to be sitting in a, in a group uh, somewhere in an office. These are the questions we're dealing with. But I would just like to add, perhaps to me, what is the most critical issue that we shouldn't lose, which is about what about the long-term uh, opportunities for young people? Um, you know, I, I worry that a lot of young people may opt to stay at home and do these remote uh, um, uh, types of uh, approaches there's a big consequence and a big loss to that, it would seem to me. It means that they're not interacting, they're not exercising that muscle that we ultimately at boards, we are looking for, for the long-term leaders, the big-time CEO leaders of the organization. Understanding how teams work, understanding how people work, their, their failures, their uh, understanding their successes, accountability, risk um, allocation, you know, areas about setting goals. All this stuff is not stuff I think you can really effectively learn being on a Zoom screen. Um, and I worry a lot about missing out, even if it's not collaborative, but not being in that sort of ecosystem um, of learning from uh, other people, being in interaction with other people that you're going to have to lead in the future. I worry a lot that that might force the glass ceiling down um, much further for, for uh, people who decide that they don't want to work or they can't work in an office setting. So we're thinking about that. We're looking at ways to, we don't, we don't want FaceTime just for the sake of it. And by, and by that, I don't mean uh, modern day FaceTime. I'm talking about FaceTime from my generation, which means showing up in the office just for the sake of it. Uh, we do, we've got a lot of, there's a lot of issues we need to deal with. And maybe I'll just leave with one more, if I may very quickly, which is to say, Whatever we're doing right now has to be future-proofed for the future. Um, you know, I speak to a lot of people who work in the retail sector, and they say, oh, we've got lots of diversity in our business. And these are big retail organizations. Yes, they do. But a lot of those people are unskilled workers working on tills um, as, as shopkeepers or as uh, you know, people in the logistics industry. They're the exact type of people who will lose their jobs if the World Economic Forum, you know, prediction of 85 million job losses because of digitization. So what does that mean in the future um, when those job losses are gone? What does that mean for our ESG agenda around diversity? Squaring those circles is, is very challenging. So as you think about uh, job losses, automation, and some of the other key technical developments that boards need to think about, you know, AI, automation, cryptocurrency, cyber attacks, how how do, how do, how should boards be thinking about those? It's really important that we shouldn't be completely seduced with risk mitigation. So risk mitigation is important. We've got to make sure that the lights come on, the companies are operating. They're not just, as I said, surviving, but they're also thriving. But we really need to continue to drive the fact that companies do need to grow. Um, and that might mean grow in size, or it might be growing in terms of return on, on invested capital. We cannot lose sight of that, that we cannot uh, shrink to grow. We've got to actually invest in, in opportunities. So when, when I'm in a, in, in a boardroom talking about energy, um, I'm, I'm very interested in CO2 
um, intensity and emissions and greenhouse gases and water. And I'm also, you know, interested in provenance. How much money are we paying per worker? All these areas are critically important. But I don't want us to just be focused on risk mitigation, downside mitigation. I'm very interested in making sure we're also saying, but where are we putting that marginal $1? And how is that going to generate return? I mean, my, one of my favorite business books is Outsiders by uh, William Thorndike. You know, he, he was very clear. The companies that over long periods of time outperform not just their peers, but also the indices, we're talking about 30 years of outperformance, are companies where the CEO is obsessively, obsessively uh, focused on where to put that marginal dollar. So it's just not, we cannot just risk manage a business. We've got to be forcing and thinking about investing uh, for the long term. Okay, I'm being cued that uh, I, we're going to move from moderator to audience questions in a moment. So people should queue up their questions into the chat. But I think I'll throw one, uh, one easy one out at you right before we go to audience <laughs> questions. Uh -oh. So, you know, if com companies are going to need to innovate or they're not going to succeed, and we've got this shifting culture that's fundamentally changing, and companies have to figure out how they address questions like morality, fairness, ethics, equity. How do you, how do you approach those things as board members? Well, you know, Jonathan, I wrote an article about uh, 10 days ago on um, the sort of questions that we should be probing. Um, and, and a lot of this is really thinking about uh, things, I, and I had three proposals, but essentially thinking about uh, harder questions on ethics, like the one I posed to you, you know, what's the worst thing that you've done to another human being? Those kind of questions, they don't have a yes or no answer. I'm hoping that people can't game the system and say, oh, you know, one of my weaknesses is that I work too hard. I mean, I'm really interested in how do you think through these. Another thing that uh, I propose, which is very common in Britain uh, around political parties, is attestation getting CEOs, senior management, board members to say, you know what, we, you know, and they love this question, you know, is there anything you'd like to tell us um, that in future could bring embarrassment to the organization? You know, I think they'll kind of attestation, it might seem kind of simple and maybe even antithetical to American culture, um, but I think that, you know, we're all human, we're all fallible. Maybe let's start to think about attestation. And then the third area is really about pushing the envelope um, on what corporations can do better. Every year we spend millions of dollars having conferences, uh, whether it's annual general meetings uh, or conferences in different locations in Tampa or Orlando or Minneapolis. So take your pick. And I don't see why we don't put more um, responsibility on management and on the boards to say, wait a second, if you're going to host an event in uh, you know, Dallas, Texas, we, we should have some kind of ranking to say, wait a second. Um, where does Dallas rank in terms of, uh, you know, employment, in terms of education, in terms of healthcare, in terms of criminal justice? Let's decide that these companies, it's not just about taxes. It's also about the values you want to imbue. Um, I'm sure I've just given a rating agency a brilliant idea uh, right there for free. Um, hopefully they'll give me some credit. But I do think that we have a lot more levers. We've got, we've got the capital. We've got human capital. Um, we should be able to say, wait a second, we don't want to go and have our event in company in, in City A because we've seen their numbers. There's a lot of abuse that's going on. There's systemic problems in the police force. So, you know, the education numbers are low. We want to go somewhere else where we can support that uh, ecosystem and that their infrastructure. So I think that those are, that's another area where we can be quite innovative uh, and we should be. Okay. Well, the good news is that I'm being replaced by an audience that has lots of excellent questions here. So let me go to the top. The first one is, will tech be a dominant industry in five to 10 years or is something else on the horizon? Will employees continue not to stay at companies for a long time or might that change? So um, if I knew how to read the future, I would be in Tahiti. Uh, as much as I love you, Jonathan, I wouldn't be here. Uh, I have absolutely no idea. I am betting on a handful of things being the dominant uh, aspects of the future. I think China is not going away. It's already the, the largest foreign direct investor, trading partner, and lender for many developed and developing countries. It's also the largest foreign lender to the U.S. government. China's not going away anytime soon. Another area I'm betting on, energy transition. 
there's a whole wide open space there. And by the way, I think I may have mentioned, but ESG itself, broadly speaking, is about $45 trillion of assets under management, according to JP Morgan. So it's not going away anytime soon. It's not an, a fad like Nifty 50 or BRICS or any of that stuff. I think this is really here to stay. So I'd be betting into that area. And then to your question specifically about technology, I don't think it's going away anytime soon. The technology revolution that we've seen thus far has been, I think, largely concentrated in areas such as consumerism or uh, areas of, of networking. We have not yet seen what technology can and will do in terms of healthcare and, uh, and education. And that could be revolutionary. Some of the stuff that I'm hearing coming out of China is already pretty phenomenal. Um, and so I'm, I'm very much await this space. These are the three areas I think are going to dominate for the next 50 years. There, is there something else that could be a total curveball? Of course there is. I mean, most of us didn't anticipate. I think I, I could be wrong, but I think the iPhone is like 14 years old or something. Uh, well, certainly it's not 50. Um, and so you start to think about the, just the massive transformational changes that have occurred uh, in just a short period of time. Um, I, I would never bet against uh, innovation. It has been a, a massive driver in, uh, in things like energy. Uh, and I think in, t in terms of just pure technology and what could happen next, uh, we have to remain open-minded and equipped for that. Okay, so if that was an engineer asking whether or not continuing to focus on machine learning, artificial intelligence, automation, robotics, uh, genomics, they're gonna be just fine in five years. Stay in school, that's what mommy's saying. <laughs> okay. How often does percentage of company ownership play into holding a board seat? How does this affect the rest of the board? For example, Uber and Travis Kalanick. It matters, um, but we, there are a lot of guardrails to make sure that you don't have those serious conflicts of interest. Um, I mentioned earlier on that I was on the uh, board of SAP Miller. Um, we had two massive uh, institutional investors. I, I'm probably going to get the numbers roughly uh, wrong, roughly right, uh, which was about, they owned about 30% of the company at that time pre the purchase. So obviously their input around selling the company was, was really important. Um, what we do in those type of situations is that they are precluded from certain decisions, but obviously their, their viewpoint matters in terms of who the CEO will be. Um, it also matters in terms of where the company goes next, of course. So, for example, in that SAB, trans SAB Miller transaction, um, many of the retail investors, mom and pop investors, ended up having to take cash as a payout, uh, whereas a lot of the large institutional investors ended up getting folded into more equity or into equity of the, the new uh, sort of acquired uh, entity uh, organization. So these things, of course, matter. Um, but we do put guardrails in place. I do know that your question probably is laced with the fact that there are clauses in a lot of the tech boards that say, well, you know, even though I may have, you know, 5% of the company or a smaller percentage of the company, I still have more outsized voting rights um, at the, uh, at the, at the, in terms of the decision rights and at, at the board, uh, board level. Um, I think that, uh, that that is something that's quite antithetical to the way other boards uh, work. And it would be interesting to see if that lasts, especially with regulatory uh, sort of uh, in, incursions uh, coming in more and more and more. Okay. Uh, can you comment on the percentages of women and people of color on corporate boards in America? How can corporate structures be reasonably changed to foster more diversity? Well, I'm incredibly optimistic. Ten, you know, 12 years ago when I joined my first board, I was on three boards of large organizations and they had no women and no people of color. Um, I tell a story in the book of how I was uh, really, I was outed um, in, a, in a, uh, a, an annual general meeting. A shareholder stood up, pointed a very aggressive finger at me and said, I want to know what the statutory or rather the, the credentials of that statutory woman are um, for her to sit on the board. And, you know, I will tell you that the good news is that all my boards now have at least 30%. Um, I think the number now in the UK is 34% of the FTSE companies um, have, uh, have women. Um, we are nowhere near... Uh, parity, but we've done a phenomenal job. It wasn't long ago that the uh, government uh, accountability office was forecasting that we might actually go a millennia without uh, reaching parity. That has been completely, uh, you know, I would say set aside as we're seeing uh, women ascend into the boardroom, minorities uh, ascend into the boardroom, and that's good business. Um, you know, I will just also point out that it's great because we're not having to, uh, to, uh, to, to shirk on, uh, on ability. 
Um, you know, I always joke about, you know, I would have loved to be on the Amazon board when I saw that they appointed Indra Nui. I was like, yeah, okay, let's just be honest. They should pick Indra Nui, you know, and more and more uh, for women and minorities, um, you know, we should not be under any illusion that anybody's doing us any favors. Um, we have, by broadening the aperture um, and saying, hey, it's not just from the C-suite. We are, there is a lot of talent out there um, coming in all shapes, colors, sizes, uh, et cetera. And I think that is good for society. Um, and, uh, we, and, you know, with this whole worry about quotas, worry about, you know, what is the stigma? Um, I think it very, very soon will be a, a thing of a past, I, I, I hope. Um, and, and I think we're going to get there much faster than even regulation uh, is, is required, uh, especially in places like California. So I'm very optimistic um, that we're going to get there uh, and, and that we are getting there. Optimism is terrific. Let's go to the next question. Is Theranos as bad as it gets when it comes to corporate ethics? Is there a type of business that tends to be most and least ethical? Wow. Well, you know, I mean, that's asking me to opine very, uh, sort of very widely. Uh, I don't know that we can, we, can we can name some other companies that did some pretty <laughs> bad things, though. I, you know, and I do name companies in my book um, that have done some some bad things. Um, and, you know, yes, I, I think that, uh, you know, it's hard. It, this is the problem with this whole thing is that we all form opinions. I want to say something about Boeing because, you know, two planes crashed and, and people lost their lives. You might want to say something about GE because, you know, what the heck was GE industrial company doing in finance? People can form opinions. It's very easy to be in the peanut gallery. But what I want to remind you is that it's very difficult when you're in that situation. The Theranos situation, um, you know, I've read the book. I even had dinner with the author. I was riveted. But the truth of the matter is I don't know what motivated them in the first place. It might have been actually very decent reasons um, and very laudable reasons um, that uh, the, the CEO and the organization decided that they needed a certain type of board member. Um, but these are, the, these are the questions. You know, Ultimately, what kind of board member do you need? One of my favorite questions from a board member said to me is that as board members, we need to think, when I'm on the board, who is going to call me? Is the CEO going to call me and say, hey, Dambisa, I need your help to think about deglobalization? Who in the C-suite, the, C the CFO, the CTO, who is going to call you? And I think it's a really good uh, question because it does bring in a lot of humility. Um, I, personally, if a board, if no, nobody from management team is calling me, I get worried because I'm like, wait a minute, I'm not just window dressing here. They must think I'm not adding value. Um, and so I think that I can't tell you what value, uh, you know, uh, Elizabeth Holmes or others have felt those those uh, board members were going to add, and it's not my place to say that's not uh, good value. Um, but I know what the board role is, and so I will be looking for people with audit experience, financial experience, risk, etc., compensation as we went through. Um, but I, I do think it's it's harder than people might think. It's easy to be throwing peanuts um, out here. <laughs> okay, uh, so. I think our audience is on to your date questions because now they're throwing <laughs> back at you one of the tough ones that they threw at me, which is, what's the biggest, biggest ethical challenge in business that you've ever faced? What top three ethical rules would you institute in any company? Wow. Okay. Wow. There are a lot of ethical challenges. Um, that I faced, and I, uh, I would just say I, the book is littered with them. But let me, let me perhaps um, uh, think, throw one out. Um, so, and this is one of the privileges of, that I, I have from having been born in a poor country, being born and raised in Zambia. Uh, I think a lot about this. So, uh, an ethical question is: um, companies can sometimes be asked to do uh, to do something. So, the regulator says we want you to pay. 10 cents a megawatt. Um, I'm sure somebody in the, in the chat will tell me that that's a ridiculous price, but just bear with me. Um, global average is, uh, is, is 5 cents. Um, the regulator says, you know what, this is the regulator in my home country, let's say Zambia, says, you know what, I really need you to come and invest in my country. So instead of the global average of 5, five cents, I'm going to let you pay 3 cents a megawatt. You know, what is, the, what is the board's role in that? What is the company's role in that? Um, you're not doing anything illegal. Um, and in fact, in, well, actually, I gave you the wrong numbers, but in fact, you could even be above the global average, um, but you could probably get away with paying 10 cents. But, you know, you're not required to. 
Um, so what is the, so those are to me those are the kind of ethical questions. I mean that's not a, a great example. I've got other ones that I couldn't possibly tell you on here without killing you. Um, but you get the picture that sometimes you're facing a situation where a government is willing to drop uh, you know uh, rules or standards um, not to do something evil, but because they're so desperate to have you invest in their country. Um, but you have to sit there and say, you know what? Are we going to? Is it going to break the bank if we pay ten cents? No, it's not. You know, global average is lower, um, and you know, let's just do the right thing. But you know, what that right thing might look like might be quite challenging. Um, top three things. Ah, okay, so that's um, quite tricky because um, I mentioned already that it's no longer about legality. It's no longer about uh, about profit and money only. It's about um, thinking about uh, what the uh, you know what the moral compass is. What do I think about those things? Um, you know. One of my favorite ones is Pareto efficiency, which is the argument: Can we move everybody forward without making any, not, without without making any one person worse off? It's an economics concept, but I really like it. I think it's a good guide. Um, we do want to move society as much as possible forward and not make any one person worse off. So that's uh, an important guide. We talked about trade-offs. Um, it's kind of related to that. Uh, you know, we can't just, we can't be hasty. I wrote an article in the Financial Times. ESG, for it, for it to survive, has to be transparent. It has to be consistent. Um, I just was asked by an Asian employee recently, wait a second, what happened when it was Black Lives Matter? Big corporations had big statements. They were out there condemning this. When it was Asian violence, it's crickets. You know, what, what's going on? How do you make those decisions? So I think the ethical compass has to be transparent. It has to be sustainable. We want something that... Uh, people can point to without even coming to the board and say, this is, I know these are the values of my organization. And then perhaps I'll just say the last thing is that you want um, a, some kind of ethical framework um, that actually, uh, you know, it just goes beyond those trade-offs and starts to think about second order considerations. Um, so when I think about ESG, people who say defund these energy companies with really not due consideration for the 1.5 billion people I mentioned have got no access to energy. 90% of the world's population lives in the emerging markets. You know, we don't even really think about them. We don't think about China and India. What does that mean? Um, it means that we have to think about disorderly migration. We have to think about those second order effects that we're not attuned to. We're now interconnected as society, as the pandemic has reminded us. Um, I want to see more of that. That would be my third point, uh, if I may. Okay. And I'm getting my two minute warning and I have about eight great questions. So I'm going to ask one that doesn't look like we have previously covered and you'll have about a minute or two to answer. How does U.S. corporate discipline compare to that in other countries? How do other capitalist countries select corporate boards and what authority do they have? Okay, so there are a lot of questions in there. Let me just um, say that jurisdictions do change. Um, I would say by and large, it's at the margin. Um, so they all have audit committees, they all have a you know, proper governance committee, et cetera. But, you know, for example, in the UK, the chairman and CEO are two separate people. In the US, it's generally the same person as chairman and CEO. Although, in order to counter that effect, you do usually have a very strong lead independent director. So we do have mitigants in place to make sure that the whole system is actually working in a very effective way. There are differences, though, cultural differences um, that I find particularly interesting. Um, the attitude to pay and compensation. Um, in places like Britain, I would argue that there are, uh, it's much more, and even Europe, across Europe, much more aggressive um, in terms of the need for regulators to step in. People are concerned about the pay ratio, CEO to to uh, median or CEO to the lowest workers. Um, of course, we're concerned about that. Well, of course, we're concerned about minimum wage, et cetera, in the US. But I think that there's a much broader sense, uh, more of the capitalist uh, ethos in the US, which would say, wait a second, look at the innovation. Uh, and I'm not here, we can debate another time the causality and the correlations, but people say, wait a minute, Innovation is coming from the United States in healthcare vaccinations, uh, you know, technological innovations in, in, from Amazon to Apple to Google, et cetera. Um, and so there, is there something to be said 
about the fact that we are seeing those type of innovations. So pay is a big thing. Innovation is very important. Uh, when I write articles, I wrote an article about Bitcoin in the Financial Times. The American response was much more hmm, curious, interesting. Um, the European response, people were like, this is ridiculous. We need more regulation. Um, so, And then I would just say one more. So it's not just innovation, not just about compensation. Another one is dealing with ESG. Um, you know, on corporate boards in the United States, ESG broadly, we're engaged. We're trying to get... Um, uh, you know, thinking about how to audit ESG and thinking about potential, whether it's uh, the big four audit firms um, adding ESG, et cetera. Uh, in Europe, I keep hearing, oh, the only auditors of ESG must be another big bureaucratic government department. Um, so again, this, the role of government is seen as much more bigger, much bigger, much more uh, need for the government to stamp its imprimatur uh, on, the, on the private sector. Um, so those are some of the differences. And it does permeate into the boardroom. Uh, obviously, in terms of risk-taking appetite, in terms of risk mitigation, being more of a driver, I would argue, than, uh, than, and, and, uh, than, uh, than sort of upside uh, opportunity. I know we have to go, but I'm going to say one last very quick thing. Also, very fundamentally, uh, in, in Europe, uh, the relationship with the CEO is much more check and challenge. I don't want to say it's adversarial, but there's much more of that tension of the CEO is not my friend. Uh, I'm here to almost question every assumption, everything that they say. Uh, whereas in the US, it's much more collegiate. The CEO sees the board as a place for them to air their vulnerabilities, their challenges. Um, they're not our friend in, in that respect, but there's much more of that sense of we're trying to help and coach the CEO for success, um, understanding that they're guardrails and we have to, in some instances, fire them. Um, but you know, it's a much more collegiate uh, sort of approach. Okay, well, sadly, we need to close there. I'd like to encourage everyone to pick up your copy of Dambisa's new book at your local bookstore. It's better for your local bookstore, and it's better for Dambisa if you buy it at a local bookstore. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> if you'd like to watch more virtual programs uh, or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts, please do visit commonwealthclub.org. Thanks to everyone for letting me serve as the moderator, and thank you to Dambisa, or after that performance, I guess I should go back to referring to her as Dr. Moyo for enlightening all of us. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.